0: We're going to jump right into uh, the message uh, about the way of the cross today. Uh, We're getting close to wrapping up our To the Cross series. If you remember, we started this as a way to connect with Jesus. The more we understand the suffering that he experienced in his last hours before the crucifixion, the better we connect with Jesus and we believe that he understands us as well. And so we're close to the end. The end of this series will actually take place on Friday night. So if you're able to join us on Friday night at seven o'clock, we'll complete our journey to the cross at that time. Uh, but today we're going we're gonna to start with um, the Via Dolorosa. Have you guys heard that phrase? It's kind of a Latin phrase, Via Dolorosa. It's uh, a word that's a phrase that describes the, the route that Jesus took from Pilate's headquarters to Golgotha, where he was crucified. And it just means the way of grief, the way of grief that that this 600-yard walk was a road of suffering, a journey of pain for Jesus. And as we prepare to talk about this today, I want to pause and just acknowledge that I think we can all look back in our lives and identify some, some via dolorosa moments, right? Some moments when we have walked a journey of pain and suffering, when we have experienced grief. And I think it's helpful for us to know when, when we're reflecting on our own grief, or maybe right now you're in one of those Via Dolorosa journeys, to reflect on that and to know that Jesus understands. In fact, he understands in a way that no one else can. Jesus gets what it's like to, to suffer unjustly, to endure suffering with, without an explanation, without a cause. And he understands. And he's with you and present with you on your journey of pain and grief as well. So as we begin today, we're we're going to be on this this journey uh, to the cross, um, and what what's happening here is there there's a, a procession of criminals and soldiers going from Pilate's headquarters to Golgotha, and the city's full of people because of Passover, and so there are people probably lining the streets we believe, watching curious to see what's happening, and there are. People standing in front of the procession of soldiers and criminals, criminals holding signs that state the accusations that the criminals are guilty of, and we know Jesus's sign says "King of the Jews." And so, as we picture this scene, I want you to imagine yourself in this story. We're going to read three sections of Scripture through Mark 15 today, and. During each time, I just want to encourage you to take an opportunity, maybe not to read from the screen, but just to listen. Maybe even close your eyes and imagine the scene. Use your imagination to put yourself in the story. So maybe in this first section, you imagine yourself as one of the bystanders that's watching this procession of soldiers and criminals. Maybe you imagine yourself as one of the soldiers who's got this responsibility to administer this punishment. Or maybe you imagine yourself as as one of the criminals carrying a 75-pound crossbeam. On your way to your death. But I just want to invite you to take a deep breath. We're going to start in Mark chapter 15 and in verse 21. Close your eyes and listen. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. We'll pause there. I mean, if you can, if you can imagine Simon, he's a bystander. He's just passing through is forced at spear point to leave the safety of the sidelines and enter into this procession that just is carrying the weight of death. And he literally becomes the first person to fulfill Jesus's command to take up your cross and follow me. And Simon puts this 75 pound cross beam on his shoulders because Jesus can no longer carry it. And as Mark weaves this into the story, I wonder if he's, if he's making a point about the concrete nature of Jesus' command to take up our cross. I think sometimes we interpret that, take up your cross in a more symbolic, metaphorical way, and we say, yep, I, I carry my cross every Monday morning, going to work for that annoying boss, right? Or I carry my cross every holiday when I go to my in-laws and sit there for, you know, what." I think Mark interprets carrying our cross very differently in a very concrete, tangible way. For him, it's, it's, it's not an imaginary or kind of a superficial way of inconvenience. It is a literal picking up a wooden beam and putting it on your shoulders and walking to your death. That's how Mark sees taking up our cross and following Jesus. It kind of puts our lives into perspective a little bit. And we start to see the weight Of what's happening here. So they take some wine mixed with myrrh, offer it to Jesus. This is probably some kind of primitive narcotic. It's intended to dull the pain, and Jesus refuses. He he won't take pain medication. Why is that? Why wouldn't you? I would. I do it all the time for minor things, headaches and muscle soreness, and Jesus is suffering intensely. But he embraces the suffering part of the journey. And he doesn't try to avoid any of it. And Mark doesn't uh, describe the crucifixion. in one of the most understated lines probably in all of scripture, he just says, and they crucified him. He doesn't go into the gory details because he knows that his readers have a pretty clear picture of what crucifixion is like. When he says they crucified him, they can picture exactly what happens. They've seen it. They've walked by on the streets as people hung there and died. So he doesn't have to go into it. But for us, what what do we imagine happens in this really short sentence? Can we picture the cruelty of this form of execution that was specifically designed to render the most possible pain and humiliation? Humiliation. They put a sign on the cross that says, King of the Jews. And we read in John's gospel that the religious leaders went to Pilate and they said, no, 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 no. It shouldn't say King of the Jews. That makes it sound like he actually was a king. Why don't you write instead, he claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. And he won't budge. And you wonder if there's a seed of curiosity in his mind about whether maybe Jesus really is a king. Let's continue. Verse 27, again, I invite you to take a breath, close your eyes, and imagine the scene. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross, save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Save yourself. Seems like a valid expectation. If he really is a miracle worker and they've seen the evidence of the miracles of Jesus, they've even... There's even evidence that he raises the dead. Is it not a legitimate expectation to say, hey, if if you're a healer, heal yourself, save yourself. And what they fail to grasp is that Jesus is choosing to stay on the cross. He says in a very predictive few phrases in John chapter 10, he says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Jesus is saying, I'm being obedient. No one forced me onto this cross. No one could. There's no power in the world that could have done that without Jesus's consent. I choose to lay my life down. And the good news is, I'm going to take it up again. But Jesus didn't choose suffering just for the sake of suffering, but he also didn't actively avoid it when it was a part of the journey to redemption. He steps into it. It's interesting, the religious leaders claim that if Jesus would only come down from the cross just right now, come down, we'll believe in you. If you, would just, if you would just do this thing, then we'll change our minds and we'll put all our trust in you as though he hadn't done enough already to prove who he actually was. And I wonder if we recognize a familiar echo in that claim when we recognize that sometimes we try to force God onto our agenda as, as well and say, God, if you would only, God, if you would just, this one thing, this one problem, this one person, if you would handle this, if you would take care of this, if you would deal with this, if you would provide, if you would heal, then I would believe. Then I'll start, I'll start going to church, I'll get my life, or then I'll read the Bible, then I'll pray as though God has not already done enough to earn our worship and praise, as though he's not already done enough to create in us a hunger to be with him. He's already done enough. He doesn't owe us anymore, but he invites us to experience the power of a relationship with him. And Jesus demonstrates right here on the cross. You can't put God in a box. You can't force him onto onto your agenda. God's going to do what's good and right. And the best bet for us is to get on board with what he's doing. We see that they put a purple robe on Jesus and a crown on his head, and they call him in mockery, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. Sarcastically, they call him the Messiah. And what they don't realize is what they're saying in sarcasm is actually truth. He actually is the Messiah. He is a king. And what they see as a man being brought to the lowest point a man can go is actually Jesus rising to the highest place in the kingdom of God. It's an upside down kingdom. What looks like humiliation is actually exaltation. When it looks like Jesus is at his lowest, It's like when he told Nicodemus in John chapter three that when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And it wasn't him being lifted up on a throne. It was him being lifted up on a cross. And the world watches still. And I wonder if sometimes we think, we forget that it's an upside down kingdom. We think if I'm a child of God, right? If God really loves me and cares about me, then he will rescue me from pain and suffering. He will deliver me from anything that is bringing hardship into my life. And he'll just take it away. Certainly God does love us and certainly he does want to deliver us from pain and heartache. But sometimes the path to redemption goes through the pain instead of around it. And Jesus demonstrates in this moment Voluntarily staying on the cross, that there's two realities that can coexist. God loves me, and I'm suffering. Those are not mutually exclusive. They can be true at this exact same time. God never stopped loving Jesus, and yet He didn't end His suffering in that moment. God can love you, and you can suffer at the same time. Let's continue one more section again. Um, take a breath. Use your imagination. Let's read verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. Darkness at noontime is a prophetic connection to the day of the Lord and the judgment of God, him pouring out his wrath on sin and evil. And the prophets may have imagined this looking differently, but in this moment, God's wrath is being poured out on sin, but it's not It's not hitting all the people who deserve it. It's hitting the one who doesn't. And this darkness is representative of God's judgment against sin that Jesus is receiving. And Jesus begins to quote this psalm, this this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the first line of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is uh, a song that the Israelites would sing about the unjust suffering of a righteous person. And there are some connections here throughout the psalm to what Jesus is experiencing on this day. And I want you to hear a little bit of it. And so we've asked somebody to kind of read this for us in a way that helps us think through it. So
1: uh, read, listen, watch the video. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm. I'm not a human, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. She trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue her. Let him deliver her, since she delights in him. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me.
0: So that's part of that. I would encourage you to go back and and maybe read the entire Psalm 22 and see uh, there are several references to events that took place right here on Golgotha that were written uh, hundreds of years before. And Jesus and many of the the Jews actually would have had this Psalm memorized. They memorized the songbook just like we do. And when Jesus begins to quote this, the Jews should have in mind what's happening to Jesus, the suffering of an unjust person, or the unjust suffering of a righteous person is what they're watching right in front of them. And I wonder if what Jesus is looking to is not just this pain of being forsaken, this pain of bearing the weight of sin, this pain of unjust suffering, but I wonder if he's also looking to how the psalm ends with a very strong, clear note of hope and faith. God, you're good. God, I will praise you. God, you are going to redeem and restore your children. Jesus has all of that going through his mind as he quotes this one line. That's the beauty of this psalm is that even though he's got this feeling of being separated from God, it doesn't have to be permanent. There's always hope for restoration. That invitation from God is for you and I as well, that we get to be with him. That invitation is always available specifically because of what Jesus Jesus is doing here on the cross. So I want to turn our thoughts just uh, for a moment to a couple of questions that I think we need to ask as we wrestle with um, understanding Jesus and what he's going through here and what this means for us as followers of Jesus today. So first question is, what does it mean for us to know that God can work through the suffering of his children to bless others? God can work through the suffering of his children to bless others. If you think about the lives of impactful people throughout Christian history, their lives were full of suffering and pain, starting with Jesus and then Peter and the Apostle Paul. And then the early church, the whole church experienced persecution under Roman rule. They suffered. And yet God blessed the world through them they brought this gospel of love and grace and reaching out to the people on the margins and, and celebrating this unity of people who are all very different from each other. They did something transformational in the world in the midst of their suffering. And even in more modern times, you think about people like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, who are missionaries. Jim went to this unreached people group in South America, and they killed him before he had a chance to share the gospel. A few years later, his wife went back to the same group and shared with him the love of God and taught them what forgiveness looks like. You think about somebody like Mother Teresa who chose a life of poverty in order to serve the poor. She wrote many things about suffering. I just want to share one of her quotes with you. She said, without suffering, our work would just be social work. Very good and helpful, but it would not be the work of Jesus Christ, not part of the redemption. All the desolation of the poor people must be redeemed and we must share it, for only by being one with them can we redeem them by bringing God into their lives. In her mind, the way that we care for people who are suffering is to choose a path of suffering for ourselves. I want to take a moment to clarify that God uh, doesn't delight in our suffering. It's not our suffering that brings him glory. It's our obedience in the face of suffering. That brings him glory. It's our willingness to say, yes, I will go. Yes, I will obey. I'll I'll do what you say. I'll go where you send me, even if it means pain, even if it means inconvenience. God doesn't delight in our suffering, but he delights in a faithfulness that considers suffering worth the cost. So one way that we can practice this is through fasting. You're thinking, why would I want to practice suffering? Because we don't always get to choose, do we? We don't always get to choose the moments that are difficult for us. They, they happen to us, right? But when we practice, then we're more prepared. And fasting is a way to do that. Fasting is a way of saying, I'll choose a little bit of suffering for the sake of obedience so that when unplanned, unexpected trials hit, then we're a little more prepared. We understand what it's like to walk a path that involves inconvenience or pain, or heartache, and we also need to remember that our suffering isn't wasted. God can use it. He can use what happens to us to be a blessing to others. Think about a friend of ours um, named Beth. She, uh, we went to college with Beth. She and her husband um, took their four kids to Hungary um, many years ago to 10 or 12 years ago to be missionaries in Hungary. And um, they, they served faithfully there for a few years, and then uh, her husband left. He left her, and he left the mission and the work. And she's there in, in a foreign country with her four children, and her life has been turned upside down. And she has to make a decision about what to do. She had been working part-time at this Uh, international school or children from all over the world uh, who find themselves in Budapest would would go to school and um, she'd been working there and at at the mission as well and now she's got to decide what's next for her And, and many of her most of her family and a lot of her friends here from the states said Beth come home come home. You're you're so far away from your support group, the people who who are going to be here for you during this really difficult time. You need some stability. Your children need some stability. Come home. And she stayed. She came to visit Sarah and I uh, because she had to raise support. The school that she works for doesn't pay their teachers. They all work on mission support. So she came to us to explain to us what she was doing and her decision. And and we said, "Why, why have you chosen to stay And she said, the mission God has given me has not changed. God has called me to Hungary to share the gospel with these children. She teaches these art classes and she gets to talk to children from different cultures all over the world, different religious upbringings and talk to them about the creator God who makes beautiful things and gives us the ability and the heart to put beautiful things into the world through art. And I have to ask, like, is this, is this what it looks like to see God working through the suffering of his children to bless other people? I wouldn't have chosen that for Beth, but I love to get her updates as she talks about the children that she gets to teach every day and how their eyes light up when they learn what, where art comes from and how to recognize it in the world and to know that the greatest artist is the one who made you and loves you. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Clearly, Jesus had to die for the plan of redemption to work. Did he have to endure mocking and humiliation and torture as well? I don't know. These things happened at the hands of evil people, but God used them so that we can take confidence that whatever we go through, Jesus understands. The second question I think we have to uh, ask is what would it look like for disciples of Jesus today to follow Jesus wherever he leads, even if it involves personal suffering? We tend to try to avoid suffering. We want to keep that far away from us, and we structure our lives a lot of times in such a way to preserve comfort and convenience. That's a very human thing to do. But what if obedience leads us into pain? Into inconvenience, into cost. I think about my mom a lot because she's my mom, but also in reference to this conversation. For the last uh, five or six years, she's been serving at an inner city mission in Atlanta, the big one that has an inner city. Uh, she goes there um, every, uh, one Sunday a month, and her job is to work the clothing counter. Uh, where homeless people from all over the city, hundreds of homeless people come every Sunday, um, and they go to the clothing counter, and they tell her what they need, a shirt, a hat, a pair of boots, and what size, and she walks downstairs into the basement. She collects the things they've asked for, brings them up, and shows them, and they'll say, yes, I'll take that. uh, I don't need that. Can you go back down and look for one of these? And she'll go down and up and down and up three or four times per person. She does this all afternoon. Uh, on uh, one Sunday a month. And my mom, when she was a child, contracted polio and has never walked well, never really been able to run. Uh, Stairs are particularly difficult for her and it's getting increasingly harder as she gets older. And yet she, she never complains. She serves these people because God put this opportunity in front of her. She didn't do it because of the suffering. She didn't go and look for something where she would have to go up and down stairs so she could suffer for Jesus. She did this because it was what God put in front of her, and the fact that it creates some pain doesn't stop her from being obedient. And what a great example. What a beautiful testimony. So what about us? Do we trust Jesus to lead us? Do we trust Him to be Lord over every part of our lives? So that if he puts an opportunity in front of us to bless, to serve, to give, to witness, are we willing to step into it? Even if it's going to be inconvenient or hurt, it would be painful for us. Here's the good news. I have to kind of put a bow on that story. Uh, last year, they did some remodeling at the mission center, and my mom no longer has to go up and downstairs. So that's, uh, that's a blessing. She's very excited about it. Um, But the fact that she did it for so many years uh, is a a powerful testimony to me. And it makes me ask this question like, how often do I just try to avoid difficult things instead of just asking God, where do you want me to go? And I go no matter what. So I just wanna invite you as I'm kind of looking at my own life saying, how can I be obedient without, without like looking for all the excuses to say no? How can I just say yes and do whatever God puts in front of me Even if it's costly. Now, I want to invite you into that as well. In fact, uh, I've asked Summer Bailey to come again and lead us in a prayer of just submission. We believe that the Spirit of God is speaking to us all the time, right? As followers of Jesus, God's Spirit is in us, leading us, moving us all the time, and our job is to listen and obey. So, Summer's going to come and lead us in a prayer of listening and obeying. Thank you, Summer.